Just a little friendly reminder out there to all you listeners, make sure to subscribe to the National Land Realty Podcast. No matter what platform you use, there is a subscribe button. Make sure to click that. That's how we measure our success and measure the value that we bring to the table. Welcome to episode number 75 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Now, it's one thing to highlight land agents with years of experience, but interviewing a new agent gives an entirely new insight to the land industry, as well as insights into your own company. James Lyles is a new agent with National Land Realty, but he's anything but new to land development. Today, we're talking about his adventurous history and the adventures that await him in land sales. Now sit back and enjoy. All right, so I am sitting here with James Lyles. And James, you are at a, uh, we were just talking about guitars. So Nashville, you're out of Nashville. And uh, you are a new, a newer agent with National Land. So it's no, new, new, new is good. New is the exact word that, that new fits. New is the exact word. The exact word, absolutely. Um, and we we normally don't run video with this, but for those of you not watching um, and you can't see this, uh, we got a sweet tropical background on uh, on James here. Uh, and my personal island. I you know I want my own personal island. Um, this is cool because it's a new agent spotlight. Uh, you know, we'll discuss James's background and and just kind of take it from there. And and from that point, James, tell me just a little bit about yourself, kind of prior to National Land, and and we'll jump into how you got here. But just tell me about your background here because your bio uh, tells me that you have a pretty fascinating background. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to frame it. Um, I think. You know, with a lot of agents, I think there's a very small percentage of agents that come into the business just wanting to be an agent, right? Or wanting to be a broker. I think most of the people that end up in this business, it's they pivot into this type of business. I might be generalizing there, but I would say it's a pretty good assumption. Um, But so, yeah. I pivoted into real estate in the latter part of my uh, career, and um, I have found my my new work home, which is NLR. Um, I, I can tell you that I my onboarding experience and my interactions with my um, coworkers and leadership and whatnot has been just a very warming wrap your arms around me type of experience. And, um, I can't, I've never felt more home into another brokerage than I have with national land. It might be because I'm a very land oriented person and it's something that I really gravitate towards. Um, and so I kind of just leaned into it maybe a little bit more, but otherwise, um, it feels good to be home. That's a, I, I like hearing that. That's, a, that's, a, that's very, very good to hear. Um, and you had 10 years of experience in development. 
Uh, I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit. What what was your sort of background with with real estate development? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I landed in real estate um, by accident. Um, I was a restaurateur for a long time. Um, my uh, my wife was from uh, California, and, I, and I'm a native Tennessean, born and raised um, in Lower Middle Tennessee, in a little town called Lynchburg. Uh, they make a lot of whiskey down there. And, um, and I ended up in California. And so I uh, opened a chain of restaurants did very well. And then I got recruited, um, by a company called cloud kitchens uh, and our CEO, his name's, uh, Travis Kalanick. And I got into, uh, land acquisitions. And so that's how I really got my foot into the door in real estate was in land acquisitions. And so we were aggressively expanding through the United States. And then we had a global presence as well. And we were basically just being disruptive in kind of how we were going to market and bringing uh, customers their food to their front door. And so we were kind of piggybacking off of uh, the whole Uber, which Travis was the former CEO of that and kind of leveraging that and making um like forward operating areas in each major metropolitan area ghost kitchens so to speak um and providing a space for these delivery drivers actually to come and pick food up and other restaurateurs to expand into these uh, ghost kitchens and provide their services as well at a low cost option and uh for startup and it was uh, it was a really cool experience. And so I fell in love with real estate, I fell in love with the the whole dynamic of it. And I just continued to grow from there. So so what this involves, I'm guessing, is so when you say ghost kitchen, this is this is the prep site where you're able to. to oh, no, it's more. It's more. It's it's much larger than that. There's actually. Larger. OK, there, so there, there, there's a retail, there's wholesale, okay. there's a delivery pickup, there's massive amounts of technology that go into these, uh, facilities. And so, um, you know, much like how we use like uh, Matterport and whatnot like that, we would develop our uh, facilities and we would have all these micro kitchens inside one large building. We could have 25 to 50 kitchens in one large building and they would have leases inside of these, um, buildings. You could have Joe's chicken shack or, you know, Henry's pancakes or whatever you could think of. And they would have a lease and they would be on all the platforms and their orders would come in. They would prepare them and they could work at any time they want to. They It's their space. Um, people could come in. There was a dining areas and the evolution of it, how it continued to grow and, and um, kind of broaden was uh, it was kind of neat to see it go from its infant stages to where it's at now. And so um I think at some point, maybe in the future, the way that people are are ordering out through online uh, online ordering is definitely going to change, and it's going to be more beneficial to uh, restaurant tours because currently, as it stands, it's um, it's kind of like dragging an anchor to do business with um, the online ordering platforms because the cost of doing business with them is pretty pretty high. So we found a solution for that. We leveraged it, and it was a win 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 the third win for the consumer the producer as well as for us 
And so it was um, a no brainer. Yeah. And I'm just, yeah, this is, you know, outside of real estate, but I'm curious about the business model. It sounds like this is a way to save on bandwidth for the actual like location restaurants. They can move a, an external kind of satellite location that's dedicated towards this model. And at the same time, keep their restaurants open. Like you said, like Joe Chicken Shack could be in there and then yeah. really on space. And now you've got the restaurant open to where you're not worried about trying to like, okay, we got an order up for table two. And we also have an Uber order. And mm-hmm. they're not in your way. They're not clogging the space up. You can, we can get back to a more holistic dining experience for people. Um, I think we, we try to really get back to the basics of that um, and take that away from the restaurants and relocate it and give it its own space to operate and breathe and grow from. And uh, they, we, we're all over the world, except in Africa and, and Russia. So uh, whatever they are. Now. That's a neat business model. But so let's let's talk about the real estate side of this. So so when you're going in, what, what kind of square footage are you talking about when you're looking at commercial spaces? In, in Well, it's not so much. Um, so let's just throw a, a real estate term. We're looking for stigmatized. We were looking for stigmatized property. OK. Gotcha. OK. And we owned, and I can only tell you so much because I have NDAs. <laughs> um, totally. but we we would um, we would basically look um, at the data that was currently. We own the data because I, I am able to tell you this: each Uber driver that you take a ride a ride with is its own personal geofence and collects data in that geofence. And at one specific moment. Every Uber driver in every city is its own geofence collecting data. And we still had rights to that data. And we would compile like hotspots in the city and where they were overlapping and use the data and like how much they were ordering in this area over here and see where all of those overlaps were. And then we would pick up, you know, a distressed property or whatnot that we could get a good deal on, pump millions of dollars into it. And then build it from the ground up, basically put infrastructure in, you know, work with the local municipality to help bolster the area. And um, most of the cities were really receptive to it. And so we just took all that data and uh, put it into place in each different city. And we went out and just we were part of that team was to, to find that spot, that one spot where the all the overlaps in the um data sets kind of like pinpointed where we needed to be like the fastest delivery time from here from point a to point b uh the greatest population density um how many hospitals how many schools or whatnot and we would just it was basically just an equation and then we would find out where we needed to operate and it was that's the building we need right there Combining population density with also you have the existing data, like you said, through geofencing of already knowing where the Uber Eats traffic is. So you already have a good idea of residual business and then correct the location that can support that commercial infrastructure. Yep. So we would go in and negotiate the purchase and start our start our new ghost kitchen. So new to national land, not so new to land acquisition. Correct. That's how I got started in real estate. 
And then um, that progresses to Keller Williams. Then it was- I did. So I left. I, I left California. I got, I got a divorce. I, I came back home to Tennessee. Wanted to come home. Uh, I wanted to be back home in the South. And so I'm, I moved to, back to Nashville, and um, I purchased some properties. I did some. I have some short-term rentals in Nashville. I have uh, some long-term rentals as well, um, and so. Uh, I wanted to uh, continue to stay in the real estate business, but, you know, grow in that. And, you know, I wanted to get into the development side of it as well. So, so my goal was basically to, to get into development. Right. And so I started making connections around the city and whatnot. Um, I got my contractor's license as well. And so we were doing some, you know, small builds. I have an excavation company that I own too. And, um, and it kind of just like morphed, um, into me needing to get my uh, actual real estate license as well to piggyback off to my piggyback off my contractor's license. And so it let Keller Williams recruited me. And so I started off at Keller Williams in Nashville and they were really, really good to me. They were great. They, um, they really taught me the ins and outs of kind of the basics and so to speak in real estate. Um, uh, I already had a strong sales slash tech background. That's really one of my strong suits. Um, uh, especially into the tech side of it, automation and whatnot like that. Um, I bring a, a really good skill set to national land realty for that in that area specifically. And I was able to actually leverage that too in my clients list right now that I bring into um, our software sets as well. And so that really gives me an edge into our market and being able to connect and creating drip campaigns and all kinds of different uh, avenues and the tools that we have available to us that agents really need to learn to lean into and learn to like, listen and take it all in. And just, if you don't really know, just continue to ask questions, dig around, get into your resource library and learn it. And you will see that there's value in that. And so that's my, um, my strong set. Um, when I came to NLR, but when I found about, about NLR, um, I knew that's where I wanted to be. I did not want to sell houses. I don't, I didn't want to do it. I don't like it. I don't like the whole tours of the homes and the, and the, the, the cattiness sort, so, so to speak, that's there's kind yeah. of, there, there's a lot of that. The conversation happens all the time, especially with because we will pick up some agents here and there that have done residential for years. And it's the, you know, real estate is real estate is kind of what a lot of people think. And, yeah. and you know, us specifically, it's like five acres and up. And you, I mean, we say that there's an acre and up, you know, there, there's acreage plots and and everything to agriculture with thousands of acres. And the world of residential is so much different than this because you're working at this velocity, like you are just churning numbers in residential and it's, it's full contact sport, right? Like there's a lot of agents out there and you're moving at a fast velocity and it's stuff like, I don't like the paint. Can you do the counters? And land is more of an investment in the client, right? Like you, you're looking at land cultivation and improvements and 
these things can take four years to to work on a, on a sales cycle for one one property, right? Sure, absolutely. And for me, what really is the passion? It's more of a, a passion project for me because I really get off on the whole emotional side of it, providing a service for a family or a farmer or you know, um, someone looking to establish hunting leases or whatnot. There's an emotional aspect to this that's not pre- present. I mean, don't get me wrong. People buying houses, new homeowners and whatnot like that. Yes, there is an emotional side to it, but it's different with land. And it's something that I identify with personally because um, I have a strong background in land before I even went to work for Cloud Kitchens. Um, after I got out of the military, um, I went back back home to my hometown in Lynchburg and got involved with land management. We could certainly get into that if you'd like to. But that's- yeah, well, I, I do want to dive into that because that involves some forestry, right? Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, and it's all it, it's all predicated on whiskey. I was going to say, because you've you mentioned whiskey barrels and I was yes, you didn't yes. because bourbon is very, I'm interested in bourbon. <laughs> well, you, you'd be interested, you'd be interested to know that we don't have good forestry practice practices when it comes to making bourbon. Too many people like it. That's the problem. It's so good. Bourbon in Tennessee, whiskey and whatnot. Um, we make it out of American white oak, specifically bourbon. The law is, is you have to make it out of new American white oak. It cannot be used. It cannot be recycled. It has to be new. And so it's, it's kind of wasteful. I mean, we sell them after they've been aged, but in order to barrel age them, they have to be new. And so we cut down a lot of American white oak. And so we don't really, well, there wasn't a lot of education going on about proper forestry practices and to enable um, these uh, canopy, tall canopy grown um, trees to produce proper trunks for these uh, staves for these cooperages to make the barrels Um, because these trunks need to be about six feet long with no branches at all on them if there's a branch on it or just a, a knot on the side of it that barrel will leak it oh, has to be an opportunity for air to penetrate and yeah yeah it will leak and so they're very picky about what they use and so ultimately what's happened is is we've created a uh not necessarily a crisis but we've only got about 80 years left of american white oak stretching from basically down to, from like, Al- like Northern Alabama up into like, you know, Indiana and over left for us to produce our product. And so we, we have to lean in to better forestry practices and um, teach people how to properly grow this species so we can continue to do what we do best. I was going to say, so if you're if you're approaching that from the forestry side, not only are you looking at the, the lifespan of the industry in terms of the tree growth, but how do you get the next wave planted in time to be able to harvest? Because I'm, I'm guessing it's probably, what, 30, 40 years before you could even harvest for a barrel? Right. A lot of people don't know this. So they don't even really like to talk about it. But yeah, trees are a renewable resource. They are. They'll always grow. But different tree species grow at different rates. Obviously, we all know that. Hardwoods are slow-growing trees. But in order to produce 
American white oak that are suitable for barrels, we have to produce, I mean, excuse me, we have to plant other tree species uh, around it that are more rapidly growing to enable it um, as well as feed it properly too with, um, with the type of nutrients in the soil um, to compete for sunlight and create a canopy grown, a high canopy grown tree because an open, an open grown tree that's like a big bush out in the middle of, of a field or something, it's worthless when it comes to uh, barrel making. It has to be in a densely populated forest. So that you don't get those low hanging branches, right? Right. You want it, you want it to compete for that sunlight and grow as high as you can get it. And, um, you know, if we can make, do better forestry management to, to replant, to help enable that growth, that's what's going to continue our um, industry the way it is. If not, we're going to have to outsource to French white oak. Which then the value of bourbon goes sky high because of transport cost across. You got oceanic transport and you're paying extra because they're depleting their supply. There's all these costs on top, on top of costs. I mean, bourbon's not cheap right now. Right. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. You, but if you're looking at an increase that could be very substantial, and if they mess it up, you've got 30 years to fix that problem because it's not going to go overnight. It's just like herd management, right? Like if you have, like if you've got, you know, 20 steers, you don't go out and send all 20 of them to to, to market, right? You you reserve some so you can continue to grow your herd, your population. And so we don't want to cut our legs out from under us. So we need to make sure that we pull some back right now and make sure that we've got good practices in place. And so I was involved in, um, I was in Washington a lot, doing a lot of lobbying with senators and um, congressmen because they are proponents of whiskey, that's for sure. <laughs> and, uh, and um it, it was well received it was called the white oak initiative and um not not only that i was involved with the uh, in, in our local um uh watershed it's the duck and elk river uh watershed which is actually the the largest watershed in uh the continental united states and um we were establishing um repairing uh, buffer zones um, so farmers could get better education so their livestock wouldn't defecate and in, uh, in the watershed and poison the water, so to speak. And so we're working with USDA. And so I had a lot of training and uh, a lot of love for land and agriculture um, as a child and after I got out of the military. And so that kind of all led me back full circle back to NLR, right? So I took all of this knowledge base. And when I found out about NLR, I knew right then and there that that was the place where I needed to land and spend the rest of my real estate career um, with my new work. Home. Well, I was going to say, so you're talking buffer zones, just for anybody curious about the term, you're talking about the distance between what you're doing and a watershed how far you have to be from that not to corrupt that watershed, right? Right. So the USDA actually um, offsets the cost of that. And so we were helping farmers um, apply for those, their, their reimbursements. That's the problem is that the farmers had to put up the money on the, on, on the front side, but the USDA would give them 
the money back, but we would establish fencing just to keep livestock out and that buffer zone to keep the, the livestock away from the watershed and so where they're supposed to be. And so we could practice waste management. Um, and so it wouldn't contaminate the water supplies because a lot of municipalities pull, pull from those watersheds for their uh, local water supplies. And I was going to say, that's something that agricultural outfits, you know, especially your, your cattle outfits, you can get dinged heavy on those, especially if you're looking to build a new one and you don't realize you're close to a watershed, or if you have an existing one that's leaching into the watershed, you have potential fines, you have potential remediation, you might have to adjust your boundaries on what you're doing. And then that takes away the the working area of your property where you might not be able to feed in the area that you thought you could. And it, just all those kind of things, if it's done, if it's handled wrong, and somebody doesn't know what they're doing, or they, they've they've thought that they've been handling it right, and maybe it's changed, or like the watersheds do change over time. Those things can really mess up somebody's operation, right? Yeah, but luckily here in Tennessee, we have a very proactive. Um, the University of Tennessee Extension offices are in each county, and they provide oversight um, for it. And so it's an open door policy. You walk into the extension office, and you're like, "Hey." I don't know anything about this. I need all the help that I can get. Help me to help you to keep me from getting in trouble and to be the best uh, steward for my land that I can be. And so, and it's a, just a, a huge outreach and just like a resource for these people in each individual County here in Tennessee. And I'm sure it's like that in a lot of other States, but the university of Tennessee extension offices in each County do a great job of that, empowering people and giving them those the tools that they need to make sure that they're um, compliant. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and because you sound like a really boring person, not really doing a whole lot, and you don't really have a whole lot of irons in the fire over your career. Uh, tell me about this excavation business that, uh, that, that you also rolling with. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, that is not a passion point. That is a pain point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever had to buy excavation equipment, but it is not cheap. And um, we typically uh, just rip the utilities and don't mean to. And so I kind of have a hands off uh, approach with that. I've got some other people that are kind of um, have oversight on that, but I don't have any day to day with it because I don't want to have any day to day with it because it just gives me a lot of stress because they I hate getting phone calls. Hey, we just busted through a huge water main in downtown Nashville while we were, you know, uh, digging, did <laughs> digging trenches for a new development. And so I'm like, ah, you know what, we just need to fix it. So I try not to, um, get involved with the day-to-day stuff and just more of like a quarterly kind of meeting and making sure everything's. Balanced. I got you. I got you, but you are involved in as far as like, you know how to move dirt. <laughs> I do. I do know how to move dirt. I know how to move very large piles of dirt very efficiently. Bio ponds, retaining walls, uh, you know, new developments and codes and all that coming along with it as well. And the ever developing codes. Um, We try to stay on top of it, but I kind of got roped into it, to be honest with you. A good friend of mine was like, hey, man, you seem bored. And you look like you might need to lose a bunch of money this year. So how about you jump on board? I was like, all right, 
It sounds great. You know, that's a this this person must have really researched sales because that I think that that would win every every. That was the best pitch I ever heard. <laughs> How would you like to just lose all of your money and your hair from the stress? Uh, mm-hmm. you know? You go 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 through something. I mean, so, I'm 44 years old, but I shaved today. But I mean, this beard is gray, man. Oh, I I get that too. I I blame every one of it on my on on my. I, I get to go home at the end of the night and be like, so okay, family, look what you're doing to me. <laughs> you got that. You got that real nice swashbuckler though. That nice pirate. Uh, I call it the conquistador. Look. My wife. Thought yeah, it was absolutely, 100. Yeah, my wife yes. thought it was hilarious, and I just ended up keeping it because it'd be. It'd be she thought it was a joke. I'm like, oh, oh, now, now. No, yeah, you think it's a joke, but I'm leaning into it now. Uh huh. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, what's what's cool about this is, a lot of times when somebody goes into land, they, they might just love land, or or you know, we get a lot of you know, there's one of my favorites is there's there's a gentleman that works for us that's a, has a master's degree in quail science and that's like fascinating he works with quail properties and but like you know we'll have residential transfers where somebody's come in from the residential you know area and just wants involved in land because they, they love hunting and stuff and but but sometimes there's like they, they build as they go right they're they're building the airplane as they fly it you've got this resume of identifying sites, looking at infrastructure, looking at traffic patterns and acquiring land around it, uh, background of forestry and forest density of site indexing of properties and harvest and yields yep. and, and you know, wetlands management as well as agricultural management due to just, just identifying buffer zones basically. But, but through that, you have to learn all the ins and outs because, you know, it's not just one thing ever that changes land. Along with that is the knowledge of how to improve land, meaning you know how to move large quantities of land, just, you know, despite despite the complexities and pains in the butt with being in excavation. So you really have this holistic background that applies to working in land real estate that that maybe your average new, I'm going to call you a newbie. Kind yeah, of operating I'll, like I'll a take newbie, it. Because you know, you're really not building that airplane as you fly. Everybody's got something to learn. But there's a lot of work and knowledge here that you built up over time to where it kind of puzzle pieced you in here to where you kind of. Oh, I've been carrying a large sack and just looking for a place to dump it all. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and the and the 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 caveat here too is and and the, even the most like the weirdest part is my wife works for a company called uh, Sonoran Desert Institute, and um, she actually uh, develops. Uh, curriculum for uh, drone pilots to pass um, their exam. So um, I just so happened to be pushed into this whole drone area as well. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I just, this is just connecting too well. Is this even real? Like, is this some utopian type of place that just doesn't really exist and I'm just dreaming? Um, But where I am now. And I just, I love it. I'm so happy to be here. And it's just a good landing spot for me to be in the last part of my real estate career. Yeah. Which that's, I, I really enjoyed that. You told me about that where your wife works and uh, as myself, a former employee of Sonora. Oh, that's right. 
Uh, by the way, not expecting it, but Jennifer McInnes and Wes LeMay. Hi. Um, so uh, a couple of the a couple of the executives. Hold on. Hold on. Let me write that down. Let me write those down. Jennifer who? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wes LeMay and um, Jennifer McInnes uh, were, were people I worked with there. Uh, great outfit, by the way. Um, but I, I thought that was hilarious when you were telling me about that, having worked there. Um, but yeah, no, it seems like the whole thing in, in how did you stumble into national and real, like, like you said, you were, you were just LinkedIn, just it's LinkedIn. Just, it's just as simple as that. LinkedIn it is the best tool for young professionals, as well as people that are a little bit further in their career and that are looking to pivot into their career. If they just take a little time and lean into that, um, it, it is your portal to whatever it is that you want to uh, springboard into. And um, I can't um, give a big enough shout out to Lauren uh, Richards and connecting with me and getting the whole process started. Fantastic. And I, so I want to hit you up here with, you know, with with the experience that you have, right? Like mm-hmm. you have a unique skill set. When you go in to look at and evaluate a piece of land, um, and, and just, you know, from, from you talking, I, you, you, you seem like a process oriented person. Do you have a set process for examining a new piece of land? Absolutely. There's, there's only two things for me for when I go look at land. First of all, the first question is why do you want it? Right. Do you want to make money off of it? Or do you just want it for like recreational use? It's just, it's just that simple. So if you want to, if you want it for recreational use, whether it's going to be, um, maybe it's going to be your, your mini farm or whatever. Okay. Is it going to meet your needs? Um, and then if it's going, if you want to make money off of it, whether it's a hunting lease or you want to plant row crops or whatever, um, let's look at the soil composition. Is it going to be the right fit for you? And is it going to generate enough revenue? Is the market going to, you know, kind of hold it up around you? And is it going to be the right piece of property for you? Because ultimately my goal is, is that I want to connect with my client because when they go to buy land, it is with great intent and purpose that they do that. And so I take that very seriously and I make sure that when I walk away from that deal, or I walk away from that client, they come back to me again because they know that the amount of dedication and energy and passion that I put into their purchase to make sure that they felt whole in it and they were represented. And I listened to their needs. I didn't listen to respond to what they were saying because a lot of people do that. They just listen to, to respond to someone. They don't actually listen with intent to understand. And like really just like lean in and just listen to them to what they're saying. When they get done with the deal and the deal's done and the deed is signed, you know, a year later, I like to circle back and make sure that they were exactly what they were expecting was given to them. And if I do that and they say, yes, I know I did my job right. One, I'm going to show my age here. Uh, with the old quote from Fight Club, right? Uh, <laughs> Are you listening or are you just waiting for your turn to speak? Uh, it was the was the quote from that I've always kept in my pocket. 
but but the other side of that is you just said something that I've heard. One, you don't hear in residential real estate, but you do hear from every single land real estate professional that I've ever talked to is that once you work with somebody, that's a relationship for decades. That that is something that you were there as a resource for the duration. And people don't just buy and flip land. They do, but it's not as common to do year in, year out. It's something that you're you're in with them for for the long haul, right? Yeah. I mean, and ultimately you kind of want to, I mean, my goal is I kind of want to be as far as it goes with my sphere of influence, um, where I live in, I live in kind of like Northern Nashville, um, just right on the outskirts. Um, I want to be the person in my sphere of influence for national land realty. Like I want to be the guy for land in my sphere of influence up here. Right. And you know, there's a million other real estate agents that can sell you a house. And there's only one person that's going to be able to represent you and national land realty and be stewards for our, you know, our company, good stewards for our company um, and for our state, make sure that we are serving the needs of our community um, and giving people their, and <laughs> basically making people's hopes and dreams come true that cause it, cause isn't that the, the, the real dream? is not only just to have a house, but to have land as, as well to go around it or extra land to do whatever you want to do. Um, that's kind of like what the American dream is. And I want to be able to help facilitate that, whether it's five acres or 500 acres. I want to be that point person in my sphere of influence. I think that that is, uh, I, I think that's the right goal. <laughs> but, uh, well, hey, James, the one, I, I don't know that you could get a much more killer closing line for a podcast than, than, than what you just had there, because I think that kind of identifies who you are. Uh, so I want to thank you for for your time here and uh, and the conversation, man. Hey, I appreciate it. It was nice uh, chatting with you a little bit. And I look forward. Or I guess I'm going to see you in February. huh? I'll see you in February. You got the national convention coming up. Yeah, I got everything booked. Flights are ready to go. Rooms are ready to go. And I'm looking forward to it. Perfect, man. I'll see you there. Yeah. This concludes episode number 75 for the National Land Realty Podcast with new National Land Realty agent, James Lyles. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.